You're listening to The Agile CTO, a podcast geared toward technology professionals, disruptors, and thought leaders. This show will aim to cover industry trends, new technologies, the life of a CTO, building dev culture, stories from some of today's leading CTOs, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Agile CTO podcast. I think today we should get straight into it to make most of the time that we have. As usual, I'm one of your hosts, Hardy Ferguson. Joined with me today, as usual as well, is Guy Coleman. But we got a bit of a special episode today. We not only have a very unique and very, uh, I must say, intimidating guest to have on the show, we also have a bit of a roundtable that we're doing uh, with two other employees that work at Hayfilly Software, being Renee and Terry. Renee, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Harley. Thank you for that. My name is Renee Johannes. I am a senior software developer at Hayfilly. I've got about 20 years experience. Um, yeah, as a woman in tech, I've seen it all, I've done it all, and yeah, I would like to be it all as well. Thank you. Fantastic. Awesome. And yourself, Terry? Yeah, hi, I'm Terry. Um, I am currently a software developer intern at Havely Software. Um, so yeah, I don't have 20 years experience, but I probably have about like six months. <laughs> Fantastic. And then uh, least importantly, Guy, how, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm a bit disappointed because the last time we did a recording, Holly, you called me your friend and, and, and this time you didn't call me your friend. So now it's a bit crazy. I don't know where I stand with you. We're going to have to have a conversation after this. But but otherwise... But do it every single time. It loses its value. I suppose so. You know, I'd, I'd prefer to hear it more often than not. But anyway, otherwise I'm good. I'm good. Um, and it's great to have all of you on today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, today we're, we're speaking to Rasheen Parks. Rasheen, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you've had an amazing career, and we want to hear all about your journey and your story at, uh, that's led you towards Project F. So a little bit of background. Um, Rasheen is ex-Gumtree, uh, Dun & Bradstreet, and various other things. Um, Rasheen, please tell us a bit about yourself, Project F, your role. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have quite a long career like Renee, um, so just over 20 years experience in the industry started out as a software engineer um, worked in various different roles in both Ireland and Australia and various different companies um, and moved into kind of leadership roles um, over the last few years and so my last big role was as as uh, chief technology officer for Gumtree um, which is part of eBay um, and I'm also on the advisory board for Project F um, for the last year or so. Um, so that's a project or a, an organization that's very, um, that I'm very passionate about um, because the idea behind Project F and Program 5050 is that we try and um, rebalance the gender disparity in tech. So, you know, as you're probably aware, there are far less. Uh, women working in technical roles in the industry and the aim of Project F is to help rebalance that. Okay. Um, if you can take us through your early part of your career, what made you decide to to be a developer? Um, actually, that's an interesting story because my dad was an engineer. So he used to bring home computers when I was quite young. 
so myself, I have two brothers. Myself and my brothers would um, play with all these computers as he brought them home. And this was before, actually, it was before the internet even. There was not a lot that you could do with these computers. So we kind of tinkered with different programming languages and things to, you know, actually try and make cursors move around on the screen or make little games so it was very rudimentary so I never really thought about it as a career at that stage and in fact I went to college to study well I did a pure science degree um, and absolutely hated it because in year one they had us dissecting dogs and that's when I realized this was not going to be the career for me (laughs) but as part of one of my modules we had a physics module and in it and we did a bit of programming. And I just thought, wow, this is actually something that you can study at university. And I found out that there was a a course in Limerick, which was my hometown, and that would actually be a four-year degree course in software engineering. So I said, right, I'm going to try my hand at this. So I was quite surprised when I joined uh, the university. I think the vast majority of the people in my class had never seen a computer before in their lives which was interesting when you think about, you know, committing yourself to a four-year degree course in programming and they didn't know how to turn one on. (laughs) So I kind of felt like I started with somewhat of an advantage over some of my classmates. And in our second year at the university, we actually did, like, I think it was an eight or nine month work placement. And a lot of uh, people in my class wanted to work for the big companies like IBM at the time. They were kind of the big, well-known tech companies. But I actually went working for a really small tech company close to where I lived. And this tech company basically didn't have a lot of developers. It was me and a couple of others. So my role there was pretty much to go out and visit customers, talk to them face to face, get some requirements from them come back to the office, design a solution for them, then build it, then test it, then put it onto a CD and basically go back out to all of their houses and install the software on their machines and then get feedback and start the process again. But it was an amazing introduction to the software industry because I got to see the whole life cycle from start to finish and the impact that that software had on the people who were using it. So I think that really kind of guided my whole career in terms of the types of roles that I looked for um, and the types of, yeah, the types of companies that I wanted to work for. So after finishing up there um, and finishing my degree, I managed to land a job as a, what was called then an object technology consultant, which means absolutely nothing now. But at the time, it was basically effectively working as a software engineer with object um, oriented programming languages such as C++ and Java to build middleware systems and then go out to all of these different companies and help install it and help them develop their own systems based on our middleware, which was Corba at the time. So for me, again, it was another huge kind of introduction to software engineering, but with a very customer focused kind of lens so again working really closely with the customers and seeing immediately how the impact of the software that you were developing which I really enjoyed 
And so from there, various different roles in different companies uh, moved from kind of a software engineering role into more of a product role for a while, which I found interesting as well. Um, And then did a little bit of strategy work before finally ending up as a CTO at Gumtree. I feel like you you probably skipped a few steps there because most people don't make it to uh, to CTO. Never mind CTO of Gumtree, but um, no, I, the part that stood out to me there was that you were doing basically BA, Dev, QA, right. and then like the equivalent of DevOps at the time without automation and all on your own. That's that's ridiculous. I think it's quite easy to see why you've achieved the the success that you have. It certainly gave me a unique perspective yeah. on um, building software because, you know, you had to think about how this was going to impact the customer and how your customer was going to be using it at the end of the day. No, definitely. I would like to go straight into the the next question and maybe get into the, the core of, of the conversation that I think we're, we're all wanting to have today. And I think that let's preface that with a bit more about Project F. How did you become involved uh, in Project F. You mentioned that you're a board member there. What's, wh- how did that all start for you? So Emma Jones is the founder of Project F and Emma and I had met at various different meetups in Sydney over the last few years and we discovered we were very kind of like-minded. So Emma also runs another organization called Men Championing Change, which effectively meets a few times a year and it's various different technology leaders across Sydney mainly and I think now Melbourne as well who come together to talk about how you know as men in the technology industry in Australia we can help change the gender balance in our teams and so I get invited along to those meetings as well and so I've gotten to know a lot of the other um, CTOs through her and work, you know, I've enjoyed chatting with them about different ways that they approach trying to improve the gender balance on their teams. But through that, I had a few conversations with Emma about this new company that she was starting called Project F. And I really, you know, very passionate about her vision and what she's trying to do. So if I can tell you a little bit about the company, Project F aims to tackle gender imbalance by helping companies navigate the different things that they need to do to help women thrive in their technology teams. So it kind of approaches it from a different perspective. And I think that's what I really liked about it. We do see a lot, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK and other parts of the world, you see a lot of organizations aiming to help more women get involved in coding Um, more young women and girls get involved in kind of STEM careers. There's, you know, lots of support networks for women, so women in tech conferences and things like that. And then you have a lot of people focused on hiring women into technical roles through recruitment drives and different approaches to recruiting. But what you don't see a lot of is companies that look to change the culture of organizations from the inside so that that culture change actually allows for women to thrive and actually become successful in their own right. That's what really kind of struck a chord with me when I spoke with Emma. So there's two parts to the organization. There's Program 5050, which is the part of the organization that goes and works directly with companies, does a full audit of their systems, environments, processes, 
to see, you know, where improvements can be made. And as part of that audit, then a full kind of assessment is done and shared with the company and the company can then decide to action that. And they get, it's kind of like a certification process that you go through. So you make a commitment to making changes. And then as you go through and make these changes, you kind of progress through this certification. Um, So that allows the companies to really advertise the fact that they have actually made these changes and and are committed to making those changes internally that actually enable, you know, better outcomes for women on their teams. And then the second part of Project F is a collection of technical women. So women in technology roles that can be everything from engineers to product managers to, you know, other roles, but effectively women technologists um, who then join up to be part of Project F, where, you know, there's information shared with those women about various different initiatives, events, you know, we hold regular events where we bring in uh, maybe inspiring women from inside and outside the tech industry. So, and they're always great to um, get inspiration from, but also as part of that then as well, we have a quite significant, almost, I don't want to say catalog, but like a large group of very qualified women. So when roles are, have opened up in these companies that are part of program 5050, then we have that kind of really good pipeline of talent that, you know, once those companies are ready to hire more women, we can connect the two together. So I think the potential there is huge to actually really help companies solve this problem and help women. One one of the things that I noticed when, because I've done a few talks at various different events and meetups, is that I quite often get asked by women, what are the best companies to work for? Who should I work for? Because they want to work in a company where they know they can be successful, that they're respected and appreciated and they'll they'll thrive. And so I think this whole program allows us to put those two things together. So companies get access to highly qualified women and the women get access to companies that are really working hard to improve the environment. Wow. It's, it's a fascinating company. And, and, we we struggle here in South Africa, I think, um, in in terms of the pipeline of female representation in the tech space, right? So, um, it, it's it's amazing that there are that, that there is an initiative like this that can assist companies like us. And I invite Renee and Terry, please jump in with any questions at any time. Um, interrupt me, interrupt wherever you feel you want to jump in. But I'm interested, Rasheen, from from your working with these companies, what type of company, size-wise and and stage of their sort of journey, are you guys engaging with? Are you are, are you engaging with startups or or large corporates that have been around for decades? Sort of, what's the mix there? Yeah, it tends to be quite a broad mix. So we have a couple of larger companies that would have, you know, maybe a thousand engineers on their tech teams, and then we have much smaller startups. We actually have a specific package for startups that allows them to get up and running with like a recipe book of policies that would actually help those businesses start with good processes and policies that, for example, would have guidance around things like parental leave and things like that. So they're starting with kind of an equal balance. 
that was something that we identified early on is that the earlier you can get in with companies like at, at a startup stage, the easier it is for them to kind of maintain that balance over time. But if you're going into a company that has a thousand engineers and 980 of them are men, it's much more difficult to actually change the gender balance in those organizations. So yeah, it can be quite, quite a mix. The one thing that is consistent across all of the companies that Project F works with is that there's complete and utter buy-in at a CEO or founder level. And, you know, we've just found that unless you have that buy-in from the very top, it doesn't kind of matter what you do, you're not going to succeed. So uh, that's the one thing that unites all the companies that we work with is that they absolutely 100% have founder and CEO buy-in. And is that a prerequisite to engagement for you guys, or do you, or do you do some sort of coaching to 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 highlight the value in that? Is there sort of a program that you guys do to do that, some sort of outreach? Yeah, so there is quite a bit of, you know, Emma shares quite a lot of information with companies before engaging with them, so that and they have to come willingly to the program because there is quite a lot of work that the companies need to do in order to go through the audit process. So, for instance, as part of the audit. We may look at all of the um, performance evaluation data anonymized across your technology team, for example, to see how there might be discrepancies between how women engineers versus men engineers are actually performance evaluated. So that data can be, you know, a bit of work for those companies to pull together and to anonymize and, and things like that. So, yeah, there's a, a bit of a time commitment for those companies to actually go through the process. So we definitely want to make sure everyone's on board before we start. It's fascinating to me that some companies wouldn't be on board with that. Surely yeah, it's, it's, I think everyone's on board with the idea. But, but if you think about like going through this process, I think what a lot of companies understand is that they may be opening a massive can of worms. <laughs> So they might discover that something they thought was fine is suddenly not. A lot of companies, what you'll find is that they want to fix it before you start <laughs> because, you know, they don't want to necessarily discover quite a lot of issues within their current processes or they may be not in a position to be able to change a lot of the policies at the same time. They might need some time to actually get around to making those policy changes or there might be bigger impacts on other parts of the business that means that it's not something they can do all at once so there i think for a lot of companies that's the scary aspect of it is that if we go through this audit process we're going to discover something terrible but in reality like nobody has this perfect so lots of companies are going to discover something you know as they go through this process and i certainly would want to know whether this was happening or not. So, for example, we had one company who we worked with who was very happy that they were sure they had fair salary across all of their different bands and across men and women in their teams. But when they went through the process, they discovered that there was actually a discrepancy in um, how women and men were paid in certain areas of their technology teams. So they had to address that. So but I think a lot of companies are just not even aware that this is happening. So it's getting the data together um, so that you can actually see exactly what's happening in your organization. You can see if there is salary discrepancies. You can see if there is issues in you know, how your managers are 
um, evaluating performance between men and women. Um, you can see if there's issues with, for example, reasons why women are leaving your organization, maybe. Um, so for organizations that aren't currently doing exit interviews, that might be something they're not even aware of. It's about pulling all of that information together and then applying some of the knowledge that Emma and her team have on kind of discovering bias in how these things happen. And so she's able to actually then put recommendations together that really put a spotlight on your organization and give you the tools to be able to make the changes that are actually going to impact positively the whole business. But you need to be committed to be able to make those changes. That's fantastic. And I think I think it's companies like that and approaches like that that are changing the game somewhat. And that's leads into my next question that I would first like to throw your way and then rope in Renee and Terry. You mentioned that it's a very it's a very deliberate effort. Companies like this exist to to go about and help other companies that aren't aware or aren't doing making active change in their conferences and all of that stuff. Have you been somewhat disappointed that something like this has to exist in order to bring about positive change? And do you feel like in your time since you started in the in the industry that it has been gradually getting better and there has been more positive change occurring? Yeah, I think the the conversation is definitely changing. I think, um, first of all, we're talking about it now. Like I had no idea when I started in the industry. We're aware that you were in the minority and that most of the people you worked with were men and it was rare to actually get the opportunity to work with other women, but you didn't necessarily know or understand the reasons why. And I think another part of it that's a big change from when I started out is that I think as a woman in tech, you assumed that all of the feedback or comments or anything that you got were because of you personally, as opposed to you know, maybe um, something that was a comment on your gender. Um, And I think there's a lot more awareness now for the women who are in the industry, at least. They're they're aware um, that there is this bias in the industry and that that's something that they're kind of swimming against. I think in terms of the leadership in the industry, I think we have now gone from probably 80% of the industry having no idea this was even an issue to probably 80 plus percent of people in the industry, particularly leaders, knowing it's an issue, but not necessarily having the tools to be able to resolve it. That's evident in the actual numbers when you look at them, because the numbers aren't getting better. (laughs) So we seem to be having way more conversations, but the numbers are still getting worse. So from like the 1980s onwards, the number of women taking up computer systems in university and the number of women taking up positions in technology has actually been declining in a steady decline since like the mid 80s. And so... The awareness is there, the conversations are there, but the numbers are not improving. So I think while that 80% are having higher awareness and they're having conversations, they don't yet have the tools to make the right decisions. And that's something that I see quite a bit when I have conversations with other leaders in the industry is that they have been making decisions based on myths that are out there or based on their own personal experience with, you know, maybe working with one or two women. 
um, and not necessarily basing their decision making on data and research. And I think that's what I would like to see happen more in the industry um, over the next few years is to, you know, really do the work and do that research. There's more and more research out there. Would definitely, I think, be better if there was more. But there is lots of research out there that show the reasons why women are leaving the tech industry, why women finish their university degrees but never start in the tech industry. And, you know, that that data is out there. And we need to start applying decision making within the tech industry based on that data rather than myths. I think that's such a good answer. And you make such a good point that it's very easy to have a conversation and to be aware of something, but taking action is actually the biggest part. And like you said, often everyone is on board until it's actually you have to do something about it. I think, Renee, I'd like to ask you, as someone who you mentioned you're nearly on your 20-year work anniversary, but also working, uh, as far as I know, your whole career in South Africa, which I think is quite common knowledge that we're generally behind systemic equality across the board. What has your experience been like? Have you seen from day one to now an improvement in women in tech? Yeah, unfortunately, I have not seen the, um, the changes that I would have liked to see. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll share a personal story with you guys at one of the companies that I worked at. Basically, um, I started as a junior developer and I wanted to become a tech lead. So I went to my tech lead and I asked him, can I please sit in the conversations where you design the software? I'll, I'm not going to say anything. I just want to sit there in the corner um, and you guys do because I just want to observe and I, was, I would like to learn. His answer was no. So I kept on asking him week after week, can I please? His answer again was no. So I went to his boss and I asked his boss, can I please sit in this um, sessions, not saying anything, just observing, just learning. And my answer again, there was no. So the, the great thing about the tool set that you have, Rasheen, is to be able to, I, I suppose when you go to these companies, you would then actually put like a spotlight on how people treat other people. And then also for the managers to take accountability because as a junior developer back then, my requests were basically brushed off. So there's there's no power, there's no say, there's no there's nothing. You just have to go in this direction where this person wants to steer your um, career. That is where you would go. Fortunately for me, I have a very strong personality and I could see where this was going. And I made a change and I moved to a different company. But I've spoken to so many young developers who are terrified to start working. They will be straight-edge students, have these fantastic projects, but do not understand how to transition from studying into a work, work environment. Number one, because when they start, there isn't another female with whom they can lean on to um, to bounce ideas off, to see like, hey, I feel a little bit insecure today. Do you know how many people have, how many females have gone to bathrooms and just started to cry because they feel so overwhelmed? I definitely think that we can do better and we should do better. And that's definitely what I do whenever there's a female developer, may it be a BA, I would try to embrace them and have that honest conversation to say that, look here, I understand this is overwhelming, but part of being a developer or, or a BA is you get thrown into the unknown. 
So just start to embrace that. But yeah, I would, I, I definitely think changes need to be made still. And it's definitely not where we're supposed to be by now. No, thanks for that, Renan. I appreciate the, the honesty um, there. And you're 100% right that it's, you know, it needs to get better. I think the flip side of that, Terry, you, you, you mentioned that you've only been, you know, uh, six months in the game. So for Rasheen and Renee getting getting into software development, like Rasheen said, she had the somewhat of a felt like she had a head start, um, ha- having worked with languages and stuff like that before. For you, do you feel like it was a a simple decision to make? Was it easy to find work to get involved, or was it? Did you have idols that you that you looked for? Were there people in the industry that you know the equivalent of like seeing someone on TV? that is the same gender as you or the same race as you or something like that. And that inspires you to, to push yourself forward. Did you have something like that? Um, no, not at all. Um, my background has got nothing to do with programming or science, really. For me, I kind of just ended up in the industry based on doing tech recruitment. I did that for a few months. And after looking at some of the job specs, um, I felt like I would like to explore that path. So I guess... Um, in the shallow sense, you could say it was money-driven. But at the end of the day, that's kind of what stirred up the interest to get into tech. And then from there, I kind of just started playing with like WordPress sites and just building up more front-end things. That was like maybe around 2016. And then obviously starting at Hayfley, it was more of a software support role. So again, nothing to do with development, but the opportunity to learn from my peers. It was visible. And within time, I started working, doing some coding for Tesco. So that's kind of how I ended up getting there. It wasn't like this amazing, I had an idol that I could follow. It was just pure based on circumstance and the job that I ended up going into after leaving Varsity. Sure. No, thank you for that, Terry. And I think it outlines that everyone has a different story at the end of the day and it's not you know, not everyone's cut from the exact same cloth and ends up in the exact same area. I think it's super cool to see this diversity of people all together and we're all in the same industry and we're all having this conversation. We're trying to push it forward. Something that, something that I'd just like to, to ask as or while we're, while we're on the, somewhat on the topic is that... Before you, before you go to that, I just want to add something, please. Um, what Terry also mentioned is you, you, don't, you don't see these idols. You don't, because women aren't successful women aren't amplified enough. I mean, we have to we have to juggle our work lives and everything and our careers, families. Um, and when somebody does good or achieves greatness, it's just like a pat on the shoulder. Oh, you did so well. We should be amplifying these women so that people like Terry have all of these people who are visible to them. <laughs> would, you, would you know that I went to a women in tech conference about two years ago, yeah, pre-COVID, and then this lady of color came to me and she said, oh, my goodness, are you a software developer? I'm like, yeah, I've never seen a female software developer. I'm like, no, really? And she's like, and you're of color. So people growing up do not know that that these things are achievable. Um, and I know at Hayfully we tried, well, we did that um, where we um, brought in students to show them the various levels of um, what you can do as a software developer or as a business analyst, what IT looks like and how diverse IT can be. And I definitely think we should we should continue on that path. 
So that that perfectly ties in with what my next point was going to be. So some context for Rasheen, we we have an outreach program, and generally with you know with South Africa, we target the underprivileged communities and show them that you know no matter your circumstances, you can be successful and you can you can achieve greatness, especially in this industry because it's very much about the individual, not where where you studied or where you're coming from and stuff like that. But as we grow, we want to expand that outreach program. So what do you think we could do? to help promote the, the women in tech aspect so that someone like Terry, maybe, you know, five, six, seven years ago, sees someone and they go, I want to be like that person. That's the person I want to grow up to be. Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I think um, if we want to actually have the numbers change in this industry over the next few years, I think there's a, a three-pronged approach that we have to take. So the first one is more companies like Project F going in and working with companies to give them the tools to actually help them create the right environment uh, that's inclusive and enables women to thrive. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we need to support the women who are currently in the technology industry. And I think I agree completely with Renee and Terry. You don't see other women. If you're coming in by yourself, it can be quite daunting, especially if you're the only woman on a team. And so many times I've sat in meetups with other women where they're just absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with other software engineers just about how they're feeling and what's going on in their teams and to look for tips of how to you know, get their voices heard. And I think it's super important that we continue to do that until the tech industry is fixed. So that that those women who are in there have support. And then the third prong is really to encourage more and more people, young people into the technology industry. And those three things have to happen at the same time. And I think that's really important. While there isn't the visibility of female role models in tech, we need to be very deliberate about encouraging more young people into the industry. And part of that is just to elevate those women across the world because they do exist. It's just elevating them so that, you know, when we think about successful people in tech, we're not just listing the likes of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, that they have other people who look like them that they can they can aspire to. Yeah, basically inspire them as well to join the industry and know that they can be, be successful in it. Yeah, absolutely. Rasheen, do you, you know, we, when we're hiring, we're actually on a hiring tilt at the moment, trying to, trying to bring in more engineers into, a, into our business since, since the, the, the COVID drama is starting to ease off. And what we're finding is it, it may, it, the symptoms of, of the situation you're speaking about here is definitely that there is an homogeneity in the industry. There's definitely men, I would say 90 plus percent male dominated specific industry, right? And, and, I acknowledge that 100%. Do you think that that is where, what? Where is this? Where is the systemic root coming from? I mean, is it from childhood where, where parents are encouraging their daughters to play with dolls instead of technology? Uh, is it the education system that's leaning into the engineering STEM qualifications towards men? Is it is it something else? I mean, where where do you think the 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 root cause of this is, and where do you think we should start focusing our efforts in fixing it long term? Uh, I know that Project Def is focusing on the businesses themselves, the companies to 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 change. Should it be coming from the top, or should we should we be looking at it from a different angle as well? 
Yeah, um, that's quite a there's quite a layered answer to that guy, I think. Um, so there's several different reasons why the tech industry is kind of a unique industry. And one of them is if you just look at the data um, over the last few years, the last few decades, and you look at women's participation in other industries, it's gone steadily up over the last few decades. If you look even within the STEM industry, participation has increased, but not at the same rate. When you look at the tech industry and technical roles specifically, the drop-off rate since the mid-80s is actually astounding in comparison to other STEM industries and other industries in general. And so when you actually look at the numbers, women leave the industry at more than twice the rate of men. And the rate in which they leave the industry accelerates the further along they go in their career. So it doesn't taper off. It actually gets worse. So what I mean is, you know, women leaving, you know, their computer science degree might drop off at 20 percent. And then women early on in their career from like one to 10 years into their career in tech drop off at a rate of 41 percent. And then from 10 to 20 years, they actually drop off at a rate of 56 percent. So it's not um, a surprise when you hear those numbers that there's so few women CTOs and CIOs because there's so few of them left in the industry. But when you actually look at and drill down to the reasons why those women leave and why that's not happening in other industries, you see that they're leaving because they feel stuck in their career. They're not getting access to the projects that will give them that promotion. Exactly to Renee's point earlier, they're not getting access to those roles. They're not getting given the chance to prove themselves and they're not getting support from their manager. And there, there's, you know, a host of reasons like that. But the reasons are not things like, you know, they're leaving to have babies, which is a myth that I hear quite a lot. Um, a lot of the women who leave go on to have full-time careers in other industries, um, just not in the tech industry. And so part of the reason for that is that over several decades, we've created this image of what a software engineer is. And a lot of that was due to how computers were actually marketed to parents back in the 1980s. It was marketed as a boy's toy and almost exclusively for, for boys. You know, there were even movies and various different uh, things like that that actually created this stereotype of the, you know, lone hooded male introverted um, person who didn't talk to anyone who only sat in front of his computer and coded. And so this created this kind of narrative that over the years has created a stereotype and a bias that means we judge people who don't look or act like that as something other. And I, I think that has led to a situation where we reinforce this bias and we reinforce this image of engineers as being, you know, a typical kind of white introverted male in the corner uh, and not necessarily understanding that skill and what we can contribute to the te technology industry can look very different um, than your kind of stereotypical um, software engineer. And so it takes a while for that bias to actually change. And it will only change when 
there's actually enough women in the industry that people stop seeing it that way. So unfortunately, at the, mo- at the moment, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's very rare to find um, women. Um, and so the safe option is always to just hire the guys because there's plenty of them and you know you've got plenty of guys on your team so can't be all bad and so that's where I think there's an extra effort needed particularly when you're hiring to look beyond the normal kind of approaches that you would take when you're hiring people onto your team that you might need to spend a little bit longer building that pipeline of talent to make sure you're attracting a wider kind of range of demographic. And that it does take effort um, because, you know, you can put a job description out tomorrow and get 10 guys to apply. Um, but if you want to make sure that you're also going to hire women, then you might have to take extra steps to ensure that they actually apply for those roles. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to just mention on the note of, of, of recruiting, it's, it's, it's coming from the recruitment agencies as well. The, the the number of women that that are put forward as candidates and the number of women that that apply, I would say, I think right now is out of ten applicants, maybe you'll get a woman on on the roster somewhere. Obviously, we we try our best to 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 hire as many women as we can. We're 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 obviously in line with that, and I'm sure there's work that we need to do, hundred percent guaranteed. But we're just not seeing the candidates, right? And and I think uh, we we probably need to have some fundamental shift in how we approach recruitment. Whereas we need to have those grassroots, uh, what do they have them in sport? The development of those resources, uh, of those people, and those skills in specifically in women, right from school level, right? And 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 get them get them equipped to take on the job market because it's it's. Yeah, it's in South Africa at least. It's 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 very difficult to find women engineers, um, at least through the the pipelines that we that we generally approach. Rasheen, I'm uh, I'm interested to know more about a topic you spoke about at a conference. I think it's pronounced Yao Y O W. You did a talk a few years ago. Something that really interested me about that is you spoke about some research uh, that somebody did. I forget the name of the researcher, but they spoke about four types of diverse teams. And you spoke about a uniform team, a skewed team, a tilted team, and a balanced team. I'm, I'm really keen to hear your take on, on what does diversity mean and what is an ideal situation for you? And do you still feel the way you did when you gave that talk? Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks for doing that research. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I've, I've learned a lot since then, but I found that piece of research to be utterly fascinating. And I can't remember the name of the person who did the research, but that it was based on a book that a woman had written, I think like 40 years ago. So it wasn't specifically about the tech industry, but it was about, you know, women and men working together in companies the research was showing, you know, the different types of teams and how the balance on those teams can tip, um, or cause specific issues or can tip over into something that becomes a high-performing team. And I think what she noted was that, um, kind of going back again to something that Renee mentioned earlier, is that if you have just one woman on a team, what ends up happening is that it can lead to that woman feeling completely isolated, 
that woman's voice not necessarily being heard because she's seen as other on the team. You know, you need to have almost like a a minimum number of um, women or allies, at least on a team that enables that woman's voice to be heard. And so for the benefit of, you know, diverse teams to really um, kick in. Um, and so that at the end of the day is kind of what it's about. So showing that we know there's evidence out there that diverse teams are more high performing, but why are they more high performing? And they're more high performing because they allow for different perspectives. So it means that a, a team that's more balanced will actually actively examine information more deeply and will come to a better outcome. And that's just, you know, from all the, this research and different ways that they've studied how humans behave and interact, that you do actually feel uncomfortable if there's people who don't look like you on a team or you perceive as other, and therefore you re-examine the information a bit more deeply. So I find that fascinating, like the whole science behind it and, and how humans actually work and interact with each other. And that goes the same, whether it's women and men or people of color joining a, a mainly white team or even people coming from a different age bracket joining a team, they can be perceived as other as well. So that diversity is actually hugely important to, to get those really positive, high-performing organizations. So I generally, if people are coming to me for advice and saying, look, we've just hired three new women I want to put one each on the, on my teams, I would say, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend doing that. I'd actually put all three on the one team because then you've got a better chance of success. Those women are more, far more likely to be supported and support each other. And therefore, you know, they'll feel included and are more likely to thrive. So it's better to have Rather than saying you've got one woman on each team and you've got, you know, three diverse teams, it's actually better to put the three of them together in one team and have two homogenous teams and one diverse team. You're more likely to get a better outcome because otherwise you run the risk of those women feeling alienated and leaving. So there's, yeah, there's lots of different bits of research like that out there. Um, again, I think it's very interesting to read up on these things and see you know, just how people interact together in teams. Yeah, sorry, I just want to add that we've, um, in the last team that I was on, we uh, we actually did just that. We had a, well, the last two projects, but with the same lady is, um, there was one BA, a female BA, and then um, myself, and we were put together, and we were just so much stronger together. Because we would, before we would start our week, we would just have a casual chat, and we would talk about our experiences for the week, about how do you perceive that person's actions or that person's actions. Am I overreacting? Am I underreacting? You know, you just need that um, to bounce certain things, certain feelings and um, off. And, yeah, it definitely works. Definitely. Um, I was just going to mention a, a cool anecdote that I that I, I caught in that, that talk of yours as well. You spoke about exploitative versus exploratory work. Right, and how diversity could be used as a tool to achieve a specific outcome. I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned that 
one of those two types of work, exploitative or exploratory, is more suited to a homogenous team than a diverse team. That that to me was fascinating as well. I don't know if you've got any more detail that you'd like to uh, that you could share with us on that. Yeah, I, I found this quite interesting as well. Um, it was basically the exploitative work tended to be work that was well-defined, um, repetitive, um, and uh, didn't require a lot of innovation or creativity. That type of work, because in homogenous teams, communication is actually can actually be smoother. It might actually be advantageous for a homogenous team to work on those types of work. Then the explorative work required much more creativity, collaboration, innovation, and kind of maybe a situation where more debate is needed around a solution, for example. That type of work is more suited when you have an inclusive team with diverse perspectives. And I mean inclusive um, kind of deliberately here, because if you just have a diverse team, but there's no equal voice on the team, then you're not going to get the outcome that you're hoping for. So it, it, it can't just be a diverse team. It also has to be an inclusive environment that allows for everyone to speak up and have their input. And if you have that, then those types of teams are far more effective for the, the more creative type of work. Okay. Is there something you would tell yourself of 20 years ago that you wish you had heard? Um, I think, to be honest, I think I would probably say just go for it. Like, you know, you are going to have a fantastic career. You're going to meet these amazing people. You're going to have impact on customers and businesses and, you know, not to be, to hold yourself back or, you know, not step forward for those opportunities. And I think that's advice I'd give anyone joining the industry now is that those opportunities are there. The impact you can have is going to be huge. And if an opportunity comes your way, even if you don't think you're ready for it, just go for it. Because there's going to be people all around you who are less ready than you are, who are going to go for it anyway. So it might as well be you. I think that's such a good answer. And like you said, that can apply to any individual joining joining the industry. Something I'd like to, you, you mentioned earlier and you mentioned again now that you've met some great individual individuals and earlier you mentioned that you've had some really good opportunities to speak to a ton of different CTOs about their approach to achieving gender equality across their teams. And obviously the name of our podcast is the Agile CTO and that most of our listeners and our demographic are, are, are CTOs. What are some of the the simplest things that they could be doing without, you know, having to bring in a project effort, something on the day-to-day just to promote that and to start having the conversation but also taking action from the conversation? I think the single most powerful thing that a leader in technology could do right now to help improve gender equality is to be a sponsor for a woman in tech. It's the biggest thing that helped me in my career, um, both official and kind of unofficial um, sponsors throughout my career who've helped me, um, you know, get the project that I was hoping to be part of 
opened doors that were kind of previously closed, introduced me to networks that I previously didn't have access to, put me forward for jobs, roles, spoke up about me in conversations in, you know, meeting rooms that I wasn't involved in. So I think a sponsor is the single most powerful thing that a woman can have. And actually, again, the data backs this up. I mentioned before that 56% of women in that kind of 10 to 20 year career bracket leave the tech industry. But if that woman has a sponsor, she's 85% more likely to stay in the industry. And that's because a sponsor can be somebody who, again, sits in meeting rooms or in um, discussions that they're not a part of that can speak up on their behalf. Like Renee mentioned, that um, opportunity that she was hoping to have to just sit in with her leader to give her an opportunity to kind of grow her skills. A sponsor would, you know, open that door for her and just say, look, this is something that we want to encourage and, you know, make that available. And I think that's hugely, hugely powerful. And it's something that every CTO and technology leader can do. So it's it's an easy one in my book. But it's so, so powerful and the outcome can be utterly fantastic. So you're effectively almost ensuring that a woman continues on in the tech industry by being that sponsor on her behalf. Great. I just want to also add, Renee, it sounds like you had a a real arsehole tech lead at the time. So I'm sorry that you had that experience. Sure. I can can tell you stories. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Not for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, um, the 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 one advice that I that I gave myself is, do not let other people choose your destiny for you, because so many other. I mean, I'm I'm so good at client facing things um, to a point where um, at least two of my, the, the the jobs that I was at, they wanted to keep me in support, and I wanted to develop. And I could not see how to get out of that. So my advice to the to the young people who enter um, IT is: do not fall into the trap where um, your employer chooses which direction you should go. You should you should choose where you want to go. I think let's let's extend that to Terry as well. Terry, like you mentioned earlier, you started out in supports, and then you yourself said, "I I want to go into the dev world." And you know maybe that does show there's been a little bit of uh, progression within within the industry that you were at an easier time making that adjustment, but still, what advice would you give to yourself in comparison to, you know, the the twenty years that Renee has had and the vast change that has occurred in that time? In the couple of years that you have had, what would you tell yourself when you first started out? Oh, sure, that's so difficult because I feel like I'm constantly changing and shifting my mindset to be a part of the tech world. But advice, I would just say. Pretty much what Roisin and Renee said previously is just go for it. Like, you're always going to have obstacles. There's always going to be challenges. Only you know what you really want to achieve. And it's pointless listening to other people and their opinions. You have to just pursue what you want. I think, that, I think that's it. <laughs> no, that, that's such a good answer. And it's, such a, it's clearly, clearly a common trend here. So I think everyone, you know, everyone within this conversation and everyone listening is definitely some useful advice to just take into into your day-to-day. Rasheen, I'd like to have another uh, question, and maybe this is a bit more um, lighthearted, but you can answer from a personal aspect as well as from a, or a personal career aspect as well as uh, Project F. So what has been a recent win? 
something positive that's gone well after you know everything that you're advocating for and fighting for on a day-to-day basis a recent win uh um when I was working at um, Gumtree here in Australia, one of the things that we really struggled with was, or, and this is a completely different topic, our entire infrastructure was hosted out of Amsterdam. Um, and so our customers were all based here in Australia. So it took quite a bit of convincing and a bit of effort to actually move us from on-premise infrastructure in Amsterdam to um, basically effectively public cloud here in Sydney, which you can imagine was quite a big project uh, for us. And I had put forward a business case that had predicted we would see a 25% improvement in our API response times by doing that because of the drop in network latency. And so they, the team went live um, a few weeks ago and we actually saw a 60% improvement in, um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so we had a bit of a celebration at the office, and even though I'd already left, um, they invited me back to have some champagne and celebrate with the team. So that was really cool. So I think as a technology person, when you achieve something like that and you see better than expected results, I think it's always like a, a bit of a great moment to actually feel that and share it with the team. So yeah, I was very happy with that. That's fantastic. I think we're normally pessimistic in our views, right? When it's like, how long is that going to take? Ah, oh, it'll take four weeks or something like that, right? And, you know, if it ends up taking actually shorter, uh, I think that's great. So that's definitely the fact that you said 25% you ended up with 60% is, uh, yeah, I can't imagine how good that must be. And on the scale of that, what that project would have been. That That's really cool. Yeah, that was that was going to be, that was going to be my, my question is like, how stressful was that time of that transition? And how much doubt did you have in your in yeah. your estimation? <laughs> yeah, quite a bit actually. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think you know when we originally talk about pessimistic, but when we originally looked at how much work it was going to take for us to do this project, it was looking at a two to th- two to three year project plan, um, which is quite significant. Um, and so. When we spoke with the the rest of the business as to the benefits that we were expecting to see, you know, it was clear that everyone wanted to accelerate this project as much as possible. So we actually managed to accelerate it to one year. So that was a huge improvement. And that was just by putting lots more people on it, lots more focus and and everything else. So we and we got help from um, Google Cloud, our partner here in Australia. Um, and, And yeah, so. It was a fantastic collaboration across. We had support from the eBay Classifieds group, ourselves, and then um, Google Cloud and another company called Servian, based in Sydney here, who we used as um, kind of they were ex- they their expertise on Google Cloud to help us over the edge. So um, it, it, but you still have lots of doubts up until the day, but you, you know, the team were absolutely amazing they pulled out all the stops we had never done the level of performance testing and load testing that we had done um we had there was just so much prep work they did everything they possibly could to enable this to actually happen and i think for the first time in our history we actually had a planned maintenance outage 
So normally we're up and running um, all all of the time, but we actually had this this planned outage so that we could actually make this transition, but roll back if there was any problems. Um, but there wasn't any problems, so we were able to go straight ahead. And it was an immediate impact um, for our customers. You could pick up the app and straight away notice visibly the difference in speed. So it was absolutely fantastic. Could could not have gone better. Planned for the worst, hoped for the best, right. uh, and thankfully got the best outcome. Right. With, without going into too much technical detail, did you guys have a, a sort of an AB environment running? So did you have your entire system running on the GCP on the side while it was still running in Amsterdam and then did the planned outage, did the data migration and then switched it over? Or yeah. It over? So the issue was that um, the, with the database we were using, we weren't able to have the database running in two locations at the same time. Uh-huh. So it wasn't possible for us to actually do that. That had been our original plan. Um, but the data latency back to the database was just too high to enable us to do that. So we had to do just go for broke. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, but we knew the risks we were taking and they had done as much testing as humanly possible. Um, and we knew, you know, how it was going to perform. Um, so we, we focused on the performance um, of the application. And then, of course, we knew that if we ran into performance difficulties in Google Cloud, that we'd be able to scale up um, in Google Cloud, which meant that, you know, we had a little bit of buffer there, even though it was going to be expensive. But that did mean that we had a bit of a safety net. And so, yeah, we were, you know, we went we went and, and did the switch over um, and just, we always had the option to roll back. So that was definitely okay. an option for us. But we couldn't run both of them at the same time um, and test. I see. I see. Yeah, that would make my skin crawl a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's actually making me itchy just thinking about that process. Um, and if I can, if I can ask you the flip side of that question. So, if, if that was a if that was a recent win and, and, and a proud moment for you in recent memory, what right now is your biggest struggle? What are you? What fire are you putting out at the moment? Um, so right now it's a completely different world for me, I guess, because, um, I finished up at Gumtree back in February. So I've actually, I took a few months off and while I'm still actively working with Project F on the advisory board, I'm actually now starting to look for another role in Australia. So I think it's, yeah, it's a very different scenario, but for me, it's now, you know, trying to work out what that role actually looks like. Um, what are the types of companies that I would want to work with? What are the, what are the projects that I would want to work on? What sort of role do I want to see myself doing? And so, yeah, I, I, uh, I kind of feel like I don't have any fires right now because, you know, I've been enjoying some time off and even though it's, COVID and there's some significant travel restrictions from Australia at the moment with the borders closed. I have enjoyed traveling around and seeing a lot more of this beautiful country, spending time with my family. And yeah, the the only, I guess, fire that I have underneath me right now is trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. Right. I don't, I don't think that you are going to struggle to find something with uh, your with your background and your experience. I think that was, that's not going to be an issue for sure. Great. and. And Holly, Holly often mocks me for asking this question this way. But at the end of the day, with the last remaining two brain cells that 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 you have to think about anything other than work, what's your thing? 
What's your passion? What's your project on the side? What I actually love doing, and my family just laugh at me because I do this like every birthday and um, special occasion, this is what happens. I have millions and millions and millions of photos. I'm like my grandmother. I just take photos of everything all the time. I corral people into you know groups and take photos. And my family just laugh at me now because I do it all the time and they just think I'm exactly like my grandmother doing this. But what I like to do is then put photo books together um, and send them to people. So I do photo books for my parents, for my brothers, for my friends. And so I have a backlog of about 10 photo albums that I want to do of the various trips that I've taken over the last few months with the kids. Um, And uh, yeah, so it's just getting the motivation to do all of that organizing of those photos and and get a photo book out the door but that's kind of the thing I'm known for in my family and amongst my friends is putting these (laughs) photo books together that's such an awesome answer I love that that's my favorite answer to that question to be honest yeah my wife's got the same affliction she does exactly that and uh Renee and Terry same question to you guys we know that the tech industry is often a very all-encompassing in industry and you know so much of our extra time as well goes towards just staying up to date but non-tech related what is your what is your current thing renee i think terry do you want to go first <laughs> i don't mind mind it okay terry can go first um damn that's something i don't really like talking about <laughs> i like just keeping myself a bit more mysterious um so, damn, I've got too many things, to be honest, way too many. But if I had to just say one thing, I would say currently it's making pots, like pottery. Um, yeah, crazy as that sounds. But yeah, that's what I'm enjoying doing. <laughs> no, it's not. You know, I think a lot of tech people are, are secretly artists and creatives at heart. I think you find that's more, more often than not their, their passion. Yeah. yeah, so <laughs> nice, Terry. Nice, creative view. Yeah. Um, what I'm doing is uh, since lockdown, I've started to get green fingers and we um, dug for the third time and then we found water. So now we have abundance of water. So now we can start growing things. So I have more than 60 fruit trees, <laughs> apple trees, pear trees, nut trees. Um, grape trees, all of that. And what I'm also um, doing is I'm, I'm grafting onto these trees. So it's just so fascinating how you can take one type of apple, cut a, a little branch off it, and then put it on a different tree, and then that will grow. So what I'm, I'm going to be doing and what I've started is I've, I've grafted um, pomelos onto our lemon tree, and then I want to see what I want to create like a fruit tree. And it's, it's nice and it's time-consuming and it takes the edge off. And my husband gets so upset because we would walk and I would see like dates from the palm tree and I would just pick it up and I put it in a bag and he'll be walking like, I don't know this woman. <laughs> but I have about 20 of them growing outside. Um, so the thing is, when it's people's uh, birthdays or just randomly when people come visit, I'm like, here's a plant for you, you know. It brings them joy as well. And... And it doesn't, it just takes effort. That's it. So, yeah, and I'm. <laughs> I love all of those answers because it's so, 
it's so endearing when you know that we're not just the we're not defined by the industry that we're in and a lot of the answers i find are generally something with your hands you know actually getting dirty whether it's you know pottery or, or gardening it's just something it's, it's quite tangible and i always think that's it's, it's quite an interesting fact because i think i myself are the same but anyway moving forward uh so back to rasheen we have the last little bit um which we call a quick fire round which is just five questions and uh trying to put you on the spot a little bit so the answers you know 30 seconds to a minute try and put some pressure on and um yeah we're very interested to see to see your answers to these guy do you want to yeah sure and the whole point of them is for our listeners to to get to know you a little bit better to pull back the curtain on who you are as a person and uh holly yeah i'll jump in i'll ask the first one rasheen tell me your latest must read what are you what are you watching at the moment what podcast are you listening to and why should our listeners be interested oh wow um so the latest thing I'm watching, I'm currently addicted to the new Amsterdam series on TV. So I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I absolutely love it. Um, so that's what I'm watching. I dip in and out of podcasts. I haven't listened to a podcast in a while. I'm missing my commute because I'm not going in and out of the city. So I'm not actually listening to anything on pod- podcasts right now. But I am. You're too busy on podcasts. Yeah. yeah actually, I have to listen to them. <laughs> Um, but in terms of reading, I have been, um, picking up and putting down this amazing book for about two years now. And I just said, right, I actually just need to finish it. It's a book called the memory code by Lynn Kelly. And it's, it's very interesting in that it shows how kind of ancient cultures used their environment as kind of memory sticks. Um, and they would, you know, I think they, she studied the um, Australian Aboriginal culture and how they use kind of landmarks as reminders for things so that they literally can memorize thousands and thousands of animals, landscapes and different things and preserve that information between generations, like for hundreds of thousands of years. And her theory is that that's what Stonehenge was used for. It was kind of like a memory stick and that people would spend time traversing these stones and every nook and cranny and crack on those stones would actually mean something and allow them to remember um, something, you know, intergenerationally. And it's just fascinating. So that's, that's my book recommendation. It's, it's between New Amsterdam and literally like the, the history of everything. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. And the next question is, who is the most professionally influential person in your life right now and, and why that person or that individual? Ooh, um, professionally influential. I don't know if you have heard of a product called Canva, um, but yes. basically yes. Canva is an Australian, it was started by an Australian um, couple here in Sydney. Um, and the founder of that is a woman by the name of Melanie Perkins. And I think she has to be one of the most inspiring women that I've ever uh, met so I actually was at an event and and got to see her speak and she's absolutely amazing Um, and she's just built this absolute behemoth of a company that's now multi-billion dollar company and she's just this amazing young woman with a huge amount of energy and tenacity and resilience and yeah I think she's awesome. Amazing. If I could ask you to put your mind into into that of others around you, what do you think 
is the most frustrating opinion they would have of you? The most frustrating opinion? Um, well, I think as a woman in tech, the most frustrating opinion I get all the time is that I mustn't be technical. <laughs> that is something that I think any woman would recognize that, um, yeah, just takes takes a bit of time for people to realize that, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a sadly true answer um, <laughs> and to maybe uh push the boundaries here what do you think is your most controversial opinion my the only thing that you say and everyone in the room rolls their eyes at her oh here she goes again guy and i have our, our ones all the guests seem to have their 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 ones what's yours my most controversial opinion um well recently i wrote a blog post about I don't know if you saw Snowflake CEO talk about, you know, diversity versus merit. And so I'd say my most controversial opinion is that merit is absolutely inherently biased and can't be used as an excuse to not have diversity on your teams. Yeah. And for any of the listeners who are interested, it's a great article. Go and read it. It's uh, very thought provoking. And what are you currently procrastinating over? I have a backlog of blog posts that I haven't sat down to write yet. Um, I have about 10 that I intend to write, but quiet to actually (laughs) sit down and just do them. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest one. Great. Well, we will definitely be uh, looking out for those, and I'm sure we'll be sharing them. And we, yeah, Guy and myself have just loved everything that you've done in, in doing research like I said, we felt a lot of pressure and intimidation because you're just so ridiculously successful and, and uh, along with everything with Project F. So we really dove in and we just yeah love everything that you've done. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. And the same to, uh, to Terry and Renee. Thanks for, for joining and sharing uh, your perspective as well. Rasheen, we do have a, uh, a Hey Fairly Australia entity. Just putting that out there, we'll have our people call your people and see what what, it, what, what agreement we can come to over there. Yeah, absolutely. And we'd love to have you back anytime, Rasheen. So thanks very much for, for yeah, again, taking the time out of your day. I know it's pretty late there, right? What's the time there in Sydney? Uh, it's six o'clock. It's not too bad. Okay. Okay. Not too bad. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks very much. We'll see you guys on the next episode of the Agile CTO. At Hayfully Software, we build dev teams that deliver and fix those that don't. Dev teams fail to deliver all the time for countless reasons, from lack of skills to barriers and culture, from politics to process, from silos to egos. Whatever the reason, it's time they deliver. This is why we exist. From enterprise to startups, we craft high-performance dev teams focused on end-to-end delivery. Visit Hayfully Software at OutsourceHS.com to learn more. You've been listening to The Agile CTO. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.